out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter and guitarist Tom Hingley, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. One-time member of several interests and excitable bands, including Too Much Texas and also the Spiral Carpets, is now playing live as a sort of more of a solo artist, really. So I'll give you his website in the notes below. Also, he's got a book that um, he wrote a few years ago, so you can find out even more information about the artist and the uh, excitement of being in an indie band and much more. Anyway, so look, after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Tom, it's over to I'm you. Pretty similar. I was born in '65, so I'm a mixture of stuff. Like my older brothers were into kind of prog rock, really. They're into bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and, and I like Bowie. I did like Space Odyssey. I know they used it for the moon landings. They used it for the subsequent Apollo missions. Um, I. I didn't really, for some reason, I didn't particularly like some of the prog rock stuff that my older brother's into. Now, over the last 50 years, I mean, I'm 58 now, I've had to give in and accept that some of it is really good, like Led Zeppelin's really good. I still don't really like Pink Floyd unless it's Sid Barrett, really. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it... like, I, I can tell that it's supposed to be of good quality, but it kind of, I don't know, it just leaves me cold, really. I think I went through a sentimental phase in the very, very early 80s of getting... Going in, it was that record, going to the record uh, library, going to the library, going to the vinyl records and getting the records out and recording them on the trusty TDK D90 cassette. And there was obviously Wish uh, Wish You Were Here and Dark Side of the Moon that got sort of put on. Because I think at that age, I was probably about 16 and was desperately trying to, you know, I don't know. I was obsessed with music at that stage. So it was kind of, you had to tick it off and become sentimental and sort of and all that kind of business, which was kind of fun. But I had a brother who was seven years older than me. So he was very into that prog rock world of, you know, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. And I, I was forbidden to go into his room to look at his records, but obviously I'd went in and played them, you know, at the age of, I don't know, quite young and um, was kind of obsessed with them. So I had that vaguely strange kind of um, knowledge of those kind of records, which I kind of thought, God, he could have given me punk rock, but it was just serious gatefold sleeve albums. Well, we were into punk rock. I mean, we did like Roxy Music. I think there's quite a sag between Brian Eno and punk. I I mean, like the Steve-O album was produced by Brian Eno, and it it doesn't sound dissimilar really from some of the stuff that he did. He kind of cleverly inserted his kind of art rock into Devo. You know, I mean, there's also a thing about Devo, you know, like, you know, they've got a song called, I mean, I'm not totally good on Led Zeppelin songs, but they've got a song called um, Uncontrolled Lurge. And I think it's basically just Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin sped up. And I, I have this idea in my head that there were a lot of jocks in American colleges who were into Led Zeppelin and hated punk music. So I think they were probably winding people up by taking, like, Dazed and Confused by, I think it's Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin and speeding it up, but it's really well played. By Devo, it's really, really <laughs> well played. But then all the lyrics are like the opposite of anything that Robert Plant would ever sing. Robert Plant is singing about how powerful this dick is. You know? This is true. <laughs> that's the... Mega strong is. Whereas like uncontrolled, uncontrolled urge goes. I've got an uncontrollable urge. I've got an uncontrollable surge. Goes. Uh, I want to tell you all about it. It says. He goes. It's so small. 
want to tell you all about it. (laughs) Removing the phallic phallic kind of, you know, dominance of rubber plants. Yeah. (laughs) So probably really annoying thousands of rock fans on college campuses. It's really well done as well. I mean, it's really, really well done. I'll have to have to check out Devo. I must admit, I did also at that Pink Floyd moment go and get Led Zeppelin Four because it had Stairway to Heaven, and you know became obsessed with that particular album, and became, I suppose, aware of Sandy Denny at that stage as well, which was quite nice. So, um, Sandy Denny was fantastic. I mean, I think we had slightly weird upbringings. We're very into Hendrix, and I suppose you know, look, obviously later on, I realised that Led Zeppelin was great, and when the tour in America bought early CDs of theirs, which were really just you know, albums dubbed off in vinyl. So, uh, you know, and then later on, they kind of um, remastered a lot of the Led Zeppelin stuff and a lot of Hendrix stuff, and it's not the same. You know, so, you know, the little chase on the end of Little Miss Lover isn't there on, like, this repackaged digital version of Electrolyte Land. It's like, yeah, it just doesn't sound right, you know. It doesn't, you know, as so you get used to the little instances. Yes, Oh, my brother, unfortunately, I had a brother who worked in the audio, he sold audio gear and he's very concerned about recording. And he, he personally has this rather, individual, had this rather individual uh, sort of view that Jimmy Page was the last person who was remastering Led Zeppelin. It was very bad. At so uh, <laughs> it's a bit like, you know, um, the Beatles, you know, they, uh, I can't remember his name, you know, the, the guy who produced it all, you know, his son remixed some of it. And I thought, God, it's just awful. It's ghastly. Like mixing two different songs together. Yes, it's awful. Yes, well, I think he yeah, did some sure work either. when he was doing a show for Las Vegas, wasn't it? Cirque du Soleil, they were starting to sort of, you know, use a bit of artistic integrity or license to sort of put it all together and make it a little bit jolly and stuff. But yeah, did you did nice. did you get to see the 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 kind of um was it Peter not not Peter Greenaway, but the the eight hour Beatles special that came out? Um, I watched it, yeah, I mean, it's on Disney Plus. I watched it. I've heard good stuff about it, but I've kind of um, haven't yet. No, I mean, I do like the Beatles, but I think, you know, the thing with, I mean, there's a certain thing about having been in bands that there's some bands out there who obviously were very successful and were financially and artistically successful, but like Queen, you know, that just never warmed to them, really. I mean, like, I mean, obviously they did a couple of albums that were groundbreaking, but then they're one of these bands where it's very, I'm being really opinionated, and it may be partly based on jealousy for their career, you know, being entirely. I'm honest about it, but you know, like they're one of those bands where a record comes along and it changes the whole soundscape of everything. Like Heart of Glass by Blondie came along, I think it was produced by Chris Thomas, and then pretty much 60% of all Queen's output after that sounded like Heart of Glass. I want to break free. It sounds like Heart of Glass. It's got a lid drum kit on it, it's got a little keyboard bass line on it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, a record comes along like, you know, like, um, you know, like that share record that you believe in love, you know, work after love with the author tuning on it or that record crazy came out. It just changes sonically all the records that come in this way, unless you really are underground and into something else. You know, I just felt like, you know, like, you know, you know, like some people probably go away and do PhDs on the lyrics of Queen. I don't think you could get that much out of Fat Bottom Girls, could you really, as a lyric? No, no, I don't think they were meant to be. Yeah, I think it's pretty I mean... much over by that point. They could have been singing about Fish Fingers, and actually I think it probably would have been a better thing. <laughs> yes, I don't know, Freddie, dear old Freddie. I didn't, um, I kind of, I suppose another brother did have a couple of those albums, which were quite exciting. News of the World, was it News of the World and another one particularly, you know, it had a lot of the early rock kind of anthems on yeah. it, which 
seemed yeah. very exciting when you're 14, 16, and you're sort of, um, yeah, getting carried away. With He's life. like an amazing front man, but, you know, they, they show you live aid and they go like, the way to communicate with the audience. Freddie Mercury was an amazing front man, but what they don't say is they had such this fantastic fan base that even now when Radio 2 has like a rock competition, they all vote first off to get Queen to number one. So what would have happened when the tickets for Live Aid went on sale, all of their fan base would have, would have gone out and bought the tickets apps, you know, before the age of the internet on the word go, which means that I don't know how many people were at Wembley, but say the apron in front of Wembley was... 10,000 people, he would have known every single one of them because he all would have been Queen fans. So no one ever says that. That's kind of, that's like, it's it's a hometown gig. It's a great gig. It was like one of their great last gigs, but that's because Buddy Murphy knew every single person. (laughs) (laughs) No one's going to tell you that because it's kind of rock mysticism that people don't want you to know that he was a great, he was a great front man all that lot, but it was their greatest fans who were playing to Yes, well, well, it's interesting because I, I, I sort of became sort of all very politically charged and bitter and twisted in the 80s. So Queen certainly went off my radar and I became to, you know, really hate them for everything they did. Um, well, because they played in South Africa, didn't they? I think they played in. Yes, they took the money Francis, and they said, that's fine. We don't care. We'll, we'll pretend we don't know about all these issues going on that everyone else knows about. It's impossible but... to buy an orange. The eighties, without being aware of all that politics, let alone you know, I mean, like you know, like Graham Parker and the rumours, you know, he he was signed. Graham Parker was signed to Mercury Records, and they they didn't promote his record at all at that time. There was some sort of, well, I suppose it was terrorism, or there was some terrorism being done by the PLO or someone where they were putting mercury in um, Israeli oranges, you know. And so, uh, so I mean, this is this isn't to do with Sun City; it's to do with another part of the world. But so. Graham Parker wasn't very pleased with his record, so he did a song called Mercury Poisoning. So he was on about, he was put, he was allying the idea of these oranges that had been poisoned with mercury with his lack of promotion. The song went, I've got mercury poisoning. Uh, it's fatal and it don't get better. I've got mercury poisoning, the best kept secret in the world, because <laughs> they clearly didn't promote his record at all. Brilliant record. So very witty. You know? Yes. It, because they promoted this previous record. I mean, he, he basically slagged off it, got his record company to slag off his record company by releasing a song that was slagging off their record company. You know, but like my um, my brother and sister, well, sisters were into Graham Parker and they were in the Graham Parker fan club in the punk years. And there was a woman, I think she was called Shelley, and she used to run their fan club and they were probably good represent about 40% of all the people he used to ring right? <laughs> to her. And she used to send them promo images. And actually, there's a record by Graham Parker got banned by Radio 1 called Hey Hey Lord Don't Ask Me Questions and actually both my daughters and both my sisters and some of our neighbours were on the front cover of that record because <laughs> it was oh. taken at Sydney Theatre you know so we were in the we are into the punk bands and my sisters I think they wrote to Reckless Eric to tell them that the words to reckon our sherry weren't right because they were studying high level French <laughs> it wasn't right so we were quite into the punk things you know yes but I suppose 60s bands to answer your question 60s bands were influenced, obviously the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Doors. Um, I was more into maybe, and I was quite into sort of late 50s rock and roll, you know, like Elvis and, um, you know, Roy Orbison. And maybe that went that slightly more innocent stuff. You know, to me, you know, that the Beatles obviously went on to become something extraordinary and something completely different. And, um, but I think that, you know, you'd rather hear the Isley Brothers singing Twist and Shower, really. Beatles. Yes. The Beatles record is important because they covered it. And to put it bluntly, this is an, another thing where there could be a, a PhD written about it. 
they basically made kind of noises like they were coming over the top of it. So it was a punk record and people don't understand that record more. People hear it now, they play it at weddings. People would do bad cover versions of the pub, so they don't realise that was actually quite a shocking record when it came out. It was actually a bit of a taboo-breaking record because you didn't do that on pop records. No. It was a large record. I don't think people realise now that that was a groundbreaking record at the time. It was. Yes. Beginning of the sort of fat rebellion thing. You know, there's a great book actually called White Powder, Black Plastic, which is written by the guy who managed the Yardbirds and later on Bros. Don't ask me his name. I remember it. And it's basically about the fact that um the uh the uh he was he was a manager who was basically saying that the three or four really big band band managers like the you know the Kit Lambert who managed the Who, Brian Epstein, the Beatles, um I don't know about Andrew Golden, but anyway, you're saying that most of the main actors of the the, the main managers of six really big sixties bands were gay. Yes. And the Stones and the Beatles were dressed up as rough trade who, who hung around. You know, West End clubs were aristocracy in them, and that was the way that they were marketed as bands. And so there's a slightly funny thing now that people sort of, you know, you know, this kind of cognitive dissonance that goes on in rock music where, you know, apparently, allegedly, like the, the Smith's first album is Noel Gallagher's favourite record. It's, it's a gas record that's ever been released. So there's a bit of cognitive dissonance going on with the idea that Oasis is a sort of the floor boogie band who are sort of, Totally, you know, for a straight heterosexual market, but Noel's favorite record is the Smith's first album, Reel Around the Fountain. It's not exactly status quo, is it? You know, <laughs> there's, kind of, there's this whole funny thing going on with pop music that is commoditized, but within it, there is probably always something that's slightly in front of what those folks are playing the bar. Yes, this is true. Yes, my God. And what about the monkeys? Did they come into your consciousness at all? They did. I think we felt a little bit like, um, there were the monkeys were on reruns, they were kind of on ITV, and at that time, I mean, we were sort of a lower middle class family pretending to be an upper middle class family, which we weren't. Sort of a bit of an odd statement to make, but it's true. And I think the monkeys were probably on ITV. The whole way that you looked at things, if you were in a lower middle class family pretending to be an upper middle class family, would be framed by whether it was on BBC or ITV. Yes. Mark Bowen's TV show was on ITV. And there was an ITV strike that took ITV off the air. In I'm going to say that it was in 1978, but I'll be wrong. And in the intervening four or five or six weeks when ITV was off the air, Mark Bowen actually died in that car crash. And they ran the last episode posthumously, and that's the one where Bowie comes on and heroes and comes on with him at the end of the show. And so we erroneously thought that ITV had to film killed Mark Bowen really by going on strike. I know that sounds completely ridiculous. It's your whole kind of cachet, your whole way of listening. Sorry, noisy. Uh, your whole way of listening to things when you were so naive and so culturally in the desert because we lived in a little hamlet in a village in the middle of nowhere. So like, so it goes, or Tony Wilson's programmes were really influential because that was the only way you were going to find out about the sex bit story. Yes, absolutely. So you, you came from the, a village background because that's you know I, I sort of I too had my childhood was in a village right in a bungalow in the middle of East Anglia which meant that um punk never happened but status quo were definitely the band that you never mentioned without quite lucky not to be underwater yes this is true but um it was it was a very sort of bikers leather jacket heavy metal kind of environment that I the quote was the... as well yeah I think Garswell's really middle oxfordshire I mean sort of you know very posh but you don't realize that 
So basically, it would have been Blue Peter the magpie, wouldn't it, in your household? Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I think going back to what you were saying, um, we did the monkeys, yeah, I did like them, but it was probably on when it was at that point when it was rerun on ITV, it would probably either be the double deckers or the banana splits or the monkeys. They were it, so like, I mean, the sort of bands who were influential to us were probably in non real bands or bands who took on that kind of artificial TV presence who were probably into the Jacksons and the Osmonds, the Waltons. Um, David Cassidy, although he later turned out to be rather quite a bad chap, really, David Cassidy. And, you know, the Harlem Globe shot this cartoon. That was all pretty. <laughs> uh, yes, any, the Harlem Globe. Hanna Barbera, we didn't really like Disney. Our parents didn't like Disney. I mean, no, I they wanted you to be on Scooby Doo, didn't they? I think uh, Hanna Barbera was sort of less. I mean, like, you know, my, I mean, obviously Disney was a genius, or I mean, he was more of a genius or marketing genius. That's even boring, but I think my mum. She lost her father when she was very lucky, uh, very young. And they took her to the cinema and she saw Bambi and she didn't like the way that they were exploiting the death of the mother, or sort of sort of manipulating people's emotions. And uh, I can't understand that. And then we went around friends' houses and they were into Disney and stuff like that and different music. So we were kind of exposed to stuff. And my parents were a lot older than me, so they were almost grandparents' age, really. Like my dad was 45 when I was born. So you know, they were almost, well, my dad was... Yes, my God, that's quite groovy, actually. When did you discover your singing voice, by the way? Well, I've always been able to sing. I used to sing in church. I used to sing as a little lad, and uh, I just used to sing in church. And uh, I mean, the problem with it, this is going to sound very conceited or whatever, but the thing is, all the way through my life, I've been pretty much capable of singing anything that, that I hear and I sing it in an emulation of the person who originally sang it. Right. Uh, I failed to learn a whole succession of instruments like piano, violin, cello, trombone. Picked up the guitar, taught myself, and uh, you know, I'm quite an accomplished songwriter and I'm a really good musician. But this sounds very conceited. I'd always thought of everyone was. So when people keep on telling you that they're not, you kind of realise that actually I'm a really good front man as well. You know, and it sounds very conceited, but you kind of just think everyone is. <laughs> so through life, I found out that they're not. It's. Uh, yeah, and then people have said, oh, like, I've had trade, trade, I've, I've been trained to sing, haven't sort of all the time myself just now. Yes. So you didn't have to do lots of exercises and sort of. Well, that's not true. I go to the gym every day and I do 80 minutes in the gym to keep you up a body strength level. So, like, I think it's, can't speak for you, but certainly, as you, you know, there's a slight lie that's said to people, which is kind of your 30s and 40s are quite stressful. When you get into your 50s, it all gets better. It doesn't at all. Doesn't get any better. You don't. You don't start feeling any better about anything as you get older. As your body starts failing, and mentally you have to do the self care. Um, you know, and I always say this thing. You know, I, I can't watch the, the TV news with it. And this is because I'm getting to be an old man. Within seconds of listening to the TV news, I'm shouting at it at the top of my voice. And I think probably if I was around eighteen, fifteen, I would have been doing the stuff back then. Holy on it was. It made me through with my personal journey. Not just what's going on you know like for years I've li- i mean again i said i'm still quite middle class i've listened to a lot of stuff on radio four in the last four, four or five years i just have to stop find it yes find it really really immensely irritating it's heard too much of the same it does this, it does happen doesn't it so when you got you did a levels and then you went did you go to university at this stage well i did i didn't do very well i didn't do very well Either what I now call GCSEs or A levels. So I mean, I got a couple of them eventually. 
on retakes. And then I spent the rest of that year busking in Berlin because my first girlfriend was at free university up there. So I was busking on the first and dam. And I used to busk outside their kind of Harrods, which was called the Car de Vie, the store of the West and Wittenberg Platz. And after about, I've got a very loud voice. And after about three weeks, I used to go in there and buy strings when I broke a string. So they wouldn't sell me strings because I was making a loud noise outside their shop. So I used to have to send punters in to go and buy me strings, which is like, that's quite bizarre. So I used to have a Woody Allen film, like that, which they would do, you know. Cause I used to sing a lot of my own stuff. A bit of old rock and roll, which I never really learned properly, which I still play now, but I still don't really play properly. Um, and then I went to the Poly in Manchester because um, I thought it would be easy to get into bands then. Yes. So was was Manchester that re- you went from Oxford busking to Berlin to Manchester Poly because of the music? Well, scene. I worked in London for a bit during that year as well, but that's another story. But I, but I, I basically, I, I once I'd done my retakes and I was getting ready to go to Manchester, I went to Berlin and I went up to Manchester a lot. But five of my friends moved off from Oxford to kind of try and make it up in Manchester and make it in bands. I and mean, it was a very counterintuitive thing to do because Manchester, look, Manchester obviously is such a great music city, but Oxford had its moment. Well, radio and the grass and yes, holes from there. I don't know someone else's anyway. There's some other really good band from there. But um, but uh, we moved up to Manchester. But that was quite a, it was kind of quite quite a counterintuitive thing to do because look, I love Manchester, but it was a bit of a dump. You know, it was uh, it was the city was burnt out. Didn't really walk around the city. I mean, it sounds like I'm exaggerating. But it didn't really walk around the city really necessarily, unless you were into football, which I'm not. And it was quite rough. You you know, we lived in Hume. There was a guy who used to walk around with a shotgun walking around Hume. Me and my first wife, we got mugged. We went to go and see Michael Clark at the RNCM. We got mugged by three guys on the on on the way back on the bridge that Joy Division had their picture taken on. So I haven't got such good cultural associations with that bridge. No. It's not there. And uh, my wife wouldn't give them whatever it was when they socked one in the jaw. It wasn't, well, you know, so it was quite rough, really. It was. And so that was before. And I was in this band called Too Much Texas. You all got jobs working in the Hacienda club. There was called the Boardwalk. So we, when we were doing this band, all the, the people, all people who moved up from Oxford, really. So we were working in the Hacienda collecting glasses and working behind the bar. We, got, we ended up supporting New Order at the Hacienda. We ended up at the Boardwalk. We ended up supporting the House of Love, the Beloved, Pastels. So it must have been quite good, really. Yes. Also, I think I was quite nice looking at that time, and that is important in pop music. It doesn't matter whether you're playing death metal. <laughs> Blog of music. Don't let anyone tell you. Avant-garde music, you know, you know, I mean, like, you know, Sid Parrot was quite good looking, wasn't he? Yes, just a bit. <laughs> I know. It's a message a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> so don't let anyone tell you that isn't important, whatever kind of music that you're playing, you know. Yeah. So then um I we we did a single, we did a peel session at Too Much Texas. And um then we did this flexi disc on the debris magazine that Dave Hasland did at that time and it got played on John Peel because we wanted to play a track by the other band we were called Soil but it wouldn't play so we played our track instead we got Peel Session then um, we Piccadilly Records was was there at that time and we'd done one record and we'd had to finance it ourselves we wanted someone else to put the second record out so I found a copy of Inspiral Carpet's first single which is called with seven inch single um which was Keith Circle around, which I should have bought because it's probably worth a couple of grand. We're running over 300 of them. And but I saw, I, I did picked up Piccadilly Records. I saw where the office was with their record company. I walked straight there, gave Paula, who ran their label, Paula Greenwood, some demos. And she wanted to sign, she wanted to put out music for our band. What happened was that label kind of folded, although it 
play playtime it kind of folded it came back later on spirals mm. and uh, then they'd lost their singer Stephen had decided he wanted just didn't he wanted to take he didn't want to be in the band at that time so they auditioned Noel Gallagher they all they auditioned is it John Matthews who ended up in the high they auditioned some mate of Martin's whose name I don't know but they wouldn't wouldn't have been right for the band and they auditioned me and I kind of joined the band and that and I was with them for all the singles we did in 1989 it was in for the four studio albums we did with mute greatest hits and we called it a day in 94 got back together in 2003 but a new version of greatest hits out toured in 2003 2005 so 2007 2008 and we didn't do anything in 2011 we tried to get back together to work out to work but it just became unworkable so basically i kind of we parted ways at the beginning of 2011 and they got Stephen back who was the singer they had before so they have toured um where they toured in 2011 i think 2012 2015 and then very sadly the drummer craig gill took his own life in 2016 so they didn't play again until they started playing again this year but they don't have martin with them anymore as a bass player and they have, a, they have Clint's son, Oscar, playing bass for them, and they have this guy, Kev Clark, playing drums for them. Right. Yes, that's, that's amazing. So when, because during that 80s period, obviously you, you've been in Manchester, it was a classic period, wasn't it? Between 83 to 87, you know, this is the years of the Smiths, there was a kind of a glorious period of indie pop, really, wasn't there? Did you, was that a particularly exciting vibe that you were experiencing in Manchester, or was it quite grim still? Oh, it was exciting enough to make me want to go and work there. I thought I thought that it was somewhere that was a probably, I mean, like I'm a southerner, but I felt that maybe... It was far before the internet. It was far enough away from London for it to have its own kind of northern pride and be separated enough. Because it, the way that culture works, my first wife Alison used to make clothes, and I mean, just look at clothes. She'd make clothes, and then these buyers would turn up from London, or they'd turn up from Korea or Japan. They buy her clothes, and then three weeks later, you find them in Topshop. So at least it took three weeks. What was the trend to be taken on by big corporate business? Yes. And so, yeah, it was an exciting time. But for the first, the, the kind of seeds that led to the Manchester scene were developing right from the early 80s onwards, you know, like, like Clint was based, but the people ended up being in the Stone Roses and Graham and Clint who were Happy Mondays and stuff. And later on, they met Noel and stuff. But it was quite an exciting, no, it was an exciting time, but it was a poor time. And people, you know, it, it was exciting, but it was very small. It was very indie. And there were a lot of bands from Glasgow, you know, your, you know, Vaseline's and, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of pastels, a lot, a lot of bands, you know, the South Sea 86 thing, which we we're talking about, was really big in the boardwalk in that walk. Yes. We were on the periphery of it all. But yeah. I, don't the, I don't think the trouble with these bands, a lot of these bands were really good, you know, out of love. But the, the music business is so controlled by London. And so if you go to sort of 1985, 1986, so London-based record companies were trying to sell really awful, terrible rap music, kind of London people putting on an American accent. It was kind of like a B-boy stuff as well in the front of the face. But it was really the Perry boy thing, the kind of anti-image thing with football. That's what kind of stuck up in the north. People wearing enormous flares or, you know, it was a reaction against all the Chelsea you wore really expensive suits. It was a bit of a reaction against all that. So it started off on the terraces, I think. Yes. So were you a real indie kid at that stage? Were you, were you sort of relating to 
you know, the, the Morrissey-Smiths vibe at this point. I was, but I, wouldn't, I mean, the thing about it is, I think it's really hard to talk about this binary opposite, so it's really hard to talk about it, because I think a lot of these indie kids, if you want to use that phrase, are quite cool. I've never considered myself to be particularly cool. You know? I mean, like, when I used to live with Alison, she, first of all, she used to make clothes, and we used to live in Hume, and it was too expensive, and she had a daughter and uh, it was too expensive to heat these flats in Hume. So she used to have a workroom in town. So she used to rent this enormous space in this workroom uh, in town. And so we we eventually used to stay there in the winter because it was warm. So we Ooh. had a bed. So it's a bit like in the 60s, it's a bit like man in a suitcase. And he worked there in the daytime and fold the bed down at night. <laughs> at all. So I was living in the middle of Manchester when no one really lived in the middle of Manchester. So I was like, he's quite cool. But you never, right, so I don't think anyone ever thinks that they're cool, do you? No, no, not at all. But Manchester Poly had been quite, had been a quite a cool place in a way because I remember listening to Alexis Searle, one of his kind of interviews with some woman who was from Manchester Poly and she'd written or co-written the Young Ones and Rick Mail had been up there and Ben Elton. So were the, had they been and gone by the time you arrived? Yeah, they had, but there was there was always some good people there. I mean, the people who were in New Fads, New Fastball Capital were in the year either below us or something or the same year as us. And obviously they went on to do the electric chair, which is a big band tonight. And they now run like electric, which is a bar in uh, in, in Chalton. And they, they have an amazing bar in the refuge building in town. And they put on this electric elephant sort of festival, which is, is somewhere in the former Easter, East, you know, in Eastern European. I mean, they're really cool. So there are, there's, yeah, it was, I mean, if, Poly was a it was a good place. Although I mean, I did an English degree, but it was basically masters. Yes. Did you? I mean, because there, there was a band, obviously simply red before then. Was that with what was um Huck Nolan before then? Because um, in the frantic elevators with Mark Reader, and Mark Reader went off to go. And, I mean, obviously Mark Reader's lived in Berlin for the last. 30 years, you know, he's run a label called MFS and done kind of dance music. Yeah, because I did an interview with him early in the year and and sort of heard his story, which was quite an extraordinary you know, journey from Manchester to the frantic elevators. Well, he started doing cosplay years before anyone did cosplay. I mean, I think his mates used to dress up in old Stasi uniforms, you know, <laughs> you know so very interesting. You know, and he, I went to I, I went to Berlin, God, 20 years ago. He had like a Berlin, he had like a 1930s vodka sort of style bar where all the people were dressed up as little 1920s people serving vodka. And I drank way too much vodka. It was violently sick. Yes. In the channeling the spirit of the Weimar. I was going to say he was channeling the spirit of the Weimar Republic, probably, wasn't he? Well, I think um, we're living through the Weimar Republic now, aren't we? A little bit. But there was interesting because you lived in that famous flat in Manchester, those flats. And I remember quite a few people I've interviewed have, have. sort of passed through there because big flame were there weren't they well yeah there was a little studio upstairs called the kitchen and like this band too much texas we recorded in there in fact, and did you come across them. the mad was it magic roundabout another band who said they i remember they talked about recording in that studio and then the happy mondays came along and basically sort of threatened them and bullied them out and they had to run for sort of fear of being beaten up by the gang well that's might be true i mean the only the only record that i can really think of that was recorded there that is obviously massive dog but we be listen back to recordings that we did there and they're really good i mean we were we were this band too much texas we were really good we were quite an indie band i mean I'll, I'll, you send us your address i'll send you a copy of this collection of stuff that we did with Vanilla, which excellent stuff. i mean like 
you know, Easter House were a local band and obviously one of them ended up in Smiths later on. But when I was at the Poly, I remember we were very jealous of Easter House because they had a deal with Rough Trade. And uh, we were quite anti-CDs at that time because it brought to us incredibly jealous, especially of its political stance. And in Rolling Stone magazine, there was a full-page advert for Easter House's first al- album that was available in America. And on the adjoining page, there was a full page about joining the American army. And I found these things rather... Because obviously, East House, who were great, but they were really very left-wing. So we did this song called Compact Discs. And it just has a bit of a peek at East House. <laughs> it says, all I want for Christmas is my two East House records and cassette and compact discs. Yes. I don't, th- I don't think... Really. It's quite fun. I don't think that many people were doing records having a dig at East House. It's largely based on the fact that they were really good. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, I did an interview with was it Ivor who was in yeah. the guitarist, but I don't I don't think he was on the second album because um, he parted away. Two brothers in the band weren't they? I mean, they did they did a really good song about the minor strike called Whistling in the Dark. Yes, this is um, true, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, yeah, I suppose I was an indicator, but you know, even with Easter House, what I'm going to say is very controversial. You know, uh, they did a gig in the Solon Bar, which is now like three or something. They, they were, you know, they look. They were very left wing, and that, that, you know, I think we all were at that time, or they probably still are, you know. But there were people there from the Revolutionary Communist Party basically collecting money for IRA snipers at the front of the gig, which I've got to say, even, even I find that's a bit of a stretch, I'm afraid. <laughs> I didn't give them any money. I mean, like saying that sounds ridiculous, and it's probably. If you say that back to people, there'd be loads of gasps off. Oh, fuck's sake, what you're on about, but it is what happened. You've got to have principles. Did Red Wedge come into your consciousness and the Redskins and and that political movement? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I was aware of them. I mean, there was, uh, oh God, um, uh, Red Wedge. Yeah, I mean, I quite like Paul Weller because I think he, you know, when he did like down in the tube station at night, I think he was aware that his fan base started becoming a little bit. There were some people in his fan base that he didn't like very much. And I think that that can happen with all bands. Yes. I, I first off, I bought our favourite shop at our council. Um, I, I did used to go on CND marches at that time and stuff, and not very much, did a little bit. I mean, we had been into rock and to racism in the 70s as well, went to gigs and stuff. But uh, yeah, I wasn't wholeheartedly into that. I mean, I've always been, I think of myself as being left wing, but I mean, I'm, I'm conservative about some things. Yes. Did you get very arty in the 80s with Art House Cinema and Betty Blue and diva and all those kind of french films generally. yeah yeah definitely into that i mean i, I like a razorhead as well I mean, there's a great bit in the razorhead where basically sort of, he, he made the film david lynch made this film i mean you probably know all this but he made this film he found out that his girlfriend was pregnant and he thought he wouldn't be able to stay in, in the film film college so the film was partly about him terrified that this fetus was going to stop him from actually continuing to study films there's this one scene in it where did you know a razor head at all? Yes, we. There's we, a bit where like he, the baby's in swaddling clothes, the, the lizard baby or the chicken lizard baby, and so he opens it up and all its internal organs are kind of exposed, and it's like this fear. I think. I mean, maybe I'm speaking a lot about myself here. There's a thing that David Lynch does where he tries to make you feel two different emotions at least at the same time. Maybe one one of horror and one of kind of slight slight excitement or something at the same time always two different emotions at the same time so he look at it looks at this, this sort of baby and its organs were all exposed and he looks at it and it's like this fear which like this primal fear which i think a lot of people who are becoming fathers for the first time might have 
it's not real. It's like, oh God, I might have created this. And I'm sorry, because if people have had children have been born who, who didn't survive or who were very badly injured, this is in quite bad taste, what I'm saying, but I didn't make the film. Yes. So, <laughs> make that clear. Baby, he looks at this baby and it's hideously disfigured. He feels like it's his fault. So it's some failing in him. He gets a pair of scissors and starts stabbing this fetus and all this stuff starts coming out of it. And it's only when he does that he realises there was nothing wrong with it at all. He killed his baby. Yes. This whole kind of psychodrama that maybe fathers go through, not mothers, fathers go through where they're worried about the things they progenitive, what they've created and whether it's not up to standard and how other people will judge it and how it would actually be better to maybe do away with it completely. But then you do that, you realise you've actually killed killed the thing, which is I, I can't explain it. It's, it's it's a brilliant film. So yeah, I'm quite into art. Yes, absolutely. But then you know, eighty seven. There's a you know the Smiths break up. There's that kind of next wave of sixteen, eighteen year olds coming along, wanting their musical landscape. There's also ecstasy appears. How did that kind of change your kind of musical kind of projection? Also, the end of a decade was was creeping up, and the eighty album was interesting. The first Smiths album because there's one song in it that sounds like. Um, there's little bits of it that sound like other stuff. Like uh, there's one song where the guitar riff it just sounds like Motorhead, you know, um, the, the guitar riff. On it. Uh, and then there's uh, another song that sounds a little bit like, you know, um, Men at Work, you know, the actual the actual rhythm part of it. I, I'm good at hearing little earworms. And so I heard that, always heard that album in terms of what the influences were. And there weren't that many influences to recognise it. But to come back to your question, uh, I, I mean, it was called X, really. I don't think that MDMA really hit Manchester until really 88. And the New Order went over to the Texas, and those people were having a stuff called X, and they kind of brought that cult back. Mm. I think there was a bit of a straight-laced attitude towards India at that time. I think a lot of people didn't take drugs. A bit of a straight-laced thing, certainly. Uh, when, you know, within Spiral Carpets, we took very little drugs, really. Bank a little bit with didn't really do a load of drugs. And I've always said this thing that in the same way that a cigarette filter sort of removes carbon monoxide from the cigarette, I think Noel Gallagher was like our drug filter. I think he took all the drugs. He was like our cigarette filter, I think. Right. Uh, first thing, I think it was more what it wasn't about. It wasn't about, it was, I mean, curiously, it was sort of, I saw Smith play twice. I saw him play at a GLC free gig. In about 2000 and God, no, sorry, 2000. It's up 1984, maybe 1983. And then Stevie Wonder played afterwards. <laughs> and I also saw him play at the Festival of the Tenth Summer, which would have been in nine. Would it have been eight? Saw him play twice. Um, I think they were just they were kind of a phenomenon, you know. They were kind of our generation's Beatles, really. Yes, and what they were and what they weren't, because over my life, uh, I had two occasions where I could have spoken to Morrissey uh, when I supported James in Spiral Carpets at the Free Trade Hall in maybe March or April, March or April or May 1989. He was there backstage, and he made himself present enough that people could see him at the monitor desk that people were shouting for him. Uh, and he was also at top of the pops later on when we were doing think we were probably doing Sam 5 and he was doing uh, more ignore me the closer I get and I didn't speak to him on either occasion because I love the Smiths I love the music of Morrissey and what I'm going to say probably going to alienate a load of your fans which is I just didn't want him 
I didn't want to meet him and find that he was rude to me because it would have made me dislike his music. So I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to lose my enjoyment of the music by talking to the person. And then later on, he's made various comments where how serious they're not that have had that effect on me. And the great thing about the Smiths is you listen to the music and it gives you this gr and a fantastic feeling of melancholy, which is great. But now there's a kind of a tend. This is just my view, and I've had arguments with people in clubs about you. Know, it now, as well as having this wonderful sort of beauty of melancholy, it has this tremendous sadness associated. I can't deal with sadness and melancholy. I mean, it's not a David Lynch film. I, I can't deal with two. No. Two at that same time, and you know, it was a thing that there was a little from a business point of view. Um, obviously, a fantastic lyricist, fantastic live performer, great band, and wonderful really uh but but um you know there was this thing that he what happened with morrissey is he'd wear a t-shirt by the darling buds or bradford and they'd get propelled into this enormous press exposure and then they'd be finished after about after about four months yes their their fame that we're gonna have by sucking it into his oof over so he did that with us so in the face i said we don't like smiths we don't like morrissey he's very out of out of killer and don't really understand what he's on about it's all bullshit i just didn't want him to force us into the thing where we got loads of exposure and then we just ended up being subsumed into it we'd never have, i would never have wanted to support smiths i mean they weren't around when i was in inspired i would never have wanted to support morrissey he just would have subsumed all the success we were having we would have been Yes, absolutely. It was kind of, yeah, no, it's, I mean, when you were talking about you can do melancholia, but you can't do sadness, can you do melancholia, romantic melancholia? What about that combination? Well, that's all right, but I just think the actual person got in the way. I just think that his, his persona has got too in the way, I think, to me, for me. You know, I'll listen to it if I hear it on the radio. I'll listen to it if, if it's played in a club, uh, but I won't play it. just can't deal with it. Uh, you know, and I've had arguments with people. They've told me I have to change my view. No, people love him. Great, get on with it. Just don't make me have to do it. No, it's good. I quite like it because he. I was obsessed with the Smith, so I find this whole journey has been quite interesting because it hasn't been easy. Because you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, I love David Bowie, and that's been not easy because a lot of his albums were dreadful. But generally, you realise he was a good bloke, and he had to deal with the record industry, so he didn't make great decisions all the time but generally you thought yes he was fine whereas this other character who started so beautifully and all those interviews and all that kind of thought that he had between you know of every subject and how sensitive he was and then the person he is now I find it you know it's not great it would be better if it was nicer but it's also quite interesting having to balance that realize and there's this I wouldn't I don't not to decry not I mean I, I hear what you're saying I'm taking on board I'm not trying to decry anyone's enjoyment i'm not trying to be the custodian of anyone's continued enjoyment or lack of enjoyment of him as an artist at the time then but you know i think i mean i could go into a whole realm of stuff which i don't really want to put into an interview but I, if i could just make it really really appear and i'm not going to refer to the artist i'm talking about i think there's a whole book to be written about and i'm not going to explain what i mean by this is but i think there's a whole book to be written about people who were in bands who clearly were actually possibly had been in relationships before the bands had become very successful. So I think personally, 
quite likely that Hall and Oates were in a relationship at some point. I think it's quite likely that Simon and Garfunkel were in a relationship at one point. I think that some of the sort of psychodramas that happened with some bands are to do with stuff that the stuff that isn't related to rock and roll, which <laughs> which, which cause problems in bands. But I'm not really going to go any more into it than that. Um, so when you see Simon and Garfunkel, it's probably completely libelous. One thing. See the way they sing harmonies together, that's a little bit more than a musical thing. And the, the way that they fell out of one another way beyond them. Yes. On that scale, I think. Yes. Maybe we better not go there. I don't even no. know. Put that in, but it's something you might want to have a think about. Yeah. And that you know, like the Culture Club, uh, Boy George was going out with the drummer, John Moss, and you know, Carmel Chameleon was about that. So there's sometimes that kind of drama going on in bands, which also has that added problem but maybe let's not include that in the interview no. <laughs> <laughs> but that could possibly be another whole wheel that spins around yes which makes people arbitrate into areas where they're caught co- i mean look all people all most people who've been in bands are attention seeking and if they don't get attention from the same thing non-controversial probably controversy i mean the one thing what i'm saying is very controversial I don't really know what he think, what Morrissey thinks about anything, but what I would say, and what I'm going to say is extremely controversial itself, is that in a way, I feel that I feel that he's stirred up some cultural problems in Britain. And when you look at other people who are professional people who are there to stir up cultural problems, people like Nigel Farage and Tommy Robinson. You know, the one thing to say about Tommy Robinson is that he does actually sometimes spend the time in the community where he stirred up the cultural problems that he's stirring up. You know, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I hate all of that. But, you know, sorry, this is the thing that people on the right always say. He doesn't live here. He wants to stir up cultural problems. He might live in the actual arena of the place where he's stirring up the cultural problems. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Or, um, or having a bank account with a very elite banking company. So, yeah, you're, I'm sort of talking about Morrissey lives in West Hollywood. I'm about West Hollywood. Is that it has its, its, its own legal domicile so it's it's not part of america legally it's a different country so it's hard to actually i'm not talking about him the reason why hollywood is like a different legal domicile we have a different set of laws there it's got a lot of very rich film stars musicians and all that lot live there and people can't see them because english law doesn't apply there so yeah. like it's very easy to stir up all the shit here and then fuck off you're sorry to swear very easy to stir up all legal problems here and then go back to this place where basically have a nice extensive property portfolio and no one can touch you for it and i'm sorry that does affect the romanticism which which i do or don't enjoy the melancholy of his music you know? but i might <laughs> be wrong that's just the way i look at it you know yes well perhaps yes that's that's kind of interesting but then i mean so when you entered the world of the inspiral carpets obviously they've been going for quite a few years what was that like entering a band and not being there at the beginning of, of their kind of journey odd because like they're northern you know some of them more working class, some of them some more artisanal class and working class. And so it was quite hard. And I'm sure it was hard for them to put up with me as well. I don't think it was six to one half. It was six to one half done the other, you know. But things we just the thing is that they had done they'd done an awful lot of work really to be successful. You know, they did a couple of field sessions. They were loved by a lot of people and they were loved in a lot of areas where if you listen to, you know, like LP for Yorkshire, hey people from Lancashire. Well, I mean, Ashley Oldham is as you can get to Yorkshire while still being in Lancashire in a kind of way, in terms of hills and in terms of culture. 
Um, but I think, you know, they had done a lot of work, but I think I came along and probably I was good looking and I was, I, I'm a very good singer, I'm a good songwriter and I'm a great front man. And, you know, we had the first meeting once I'd got in the band and I said, well, when are we going to see the manager? And they said, well, we'll see him on Sunday. And I said, well, no, we need kind of that now. Really. This is the thing. So I'm, I'm quite, we were all good at business, but I'm, I did bring a lot of energy to that kind of scenario. So it was probably, it was very dynamic. It was very exciting, but it probably wasn't very easy for either party. Yes. And who was it, was it mostly, whose band was it kind of, did you feel? Because most bands have a, a per, particular person or a couple of people. Well, it was Graham and Stephen's band, but then Stephen left, so it became sort of Clint's band, Clint and Graham's band, and then kind of all worked together. But I think over the years, it's probably Graham's band, really, to be honest. Yes. He's come back into it now, and that's okay. And that's kind of the way it's happened. It wasn't really, I think I went on a kind of 23 year hitchhike with them in a way. Did you, um, I mean, with without you, would that, would they not have taken off as they did with, you know, it's, it's impossible to say. I mean, I think probably they were doing something very interesting, which was they were a band from Oldham where most people were from. You know, like, people used to walk around with a Peter Sport haircut. I mean, I imagine there may be various occasions where he might have been popped on the nose by some John Bon Jovi fan. You know, also, I don't think it's particularly easy being into psychedelic music, and I think what they were doing was sort of finding their own subgenre and creating their own kind of trend which was rejecting the mainstream stuff that was garbage. And I think they would have been successful, but I think probably what I brought to it, they were, they were successful and they would have been successful if they could have kept that critical mass together, but they couldn't. You know, the bass player Dave Swift left and Stephen left and they had to find a new bass player, which was Martin, and they had to find a new singer, which was me for 23 years. I, I, I think it would be unfair for me to say they would have been successful, but whether I think we... When we got together, we had a whole kind of pop success that was on top of the kind of indie success that we already had. And I think that took the band to a bigger stage and physically to bit but it put the band on a bigger stage. And I don't think I don't think we would have had that without me being there. Yes. Um what was it like kind of following it, you know, following that sort of success success up with the second studio album? Well, it's really hard because the obvious thing is that you've got the whole of your life up to that point to write your first album. You've got all your experiences and all your life up to that point to record your first album, but then you've only got the time between your first album coming out and your second album having to come out to write your second album. So the first, second album was very different, much more. But a few of the songs had been songs that they'd sung with Stephen, not all of them though. Um, and uh, so the second album is sort of a bit of an arty album, the Beast Inside. It was sort of a bit more dark, maybe, and you know, it was a bit more influenced by people like the Twin Peak, like Andrew Balamonte and. David Lynch and Bobby maybe talk talk. I was a little bit worried about maybe just listening to too much talk talk. I felt like it was much start to trying to make third rate versions of it. Yes. So I think it's a great album, but it's a it's a album for the fans and it didn't do particularly well. I mean, it didn't really, you know, the, the, if we wanted to have we the, you know, if we wanted to have more commercial success, we probably should have got some DJ to do the second record. Work and told us something like that, but I wasn't really the page that we were on. I think we'd, we'd hit this sort of pop success, which was maybe a bit, a bit wider than maybe the people who'd been in the band before I joined it intended, and that maybe became a little bit of a millstone around our necks, possibly. Yes. And what was it like, kind of, with working with different producers? Because by was it the third one you'd worked with Pascal at this stage? 
the first album we did with a guy, um, Nick Garside, and we were doing this little studio where he basically produced our album. Later on, he produced, I think he produced Goldmother by James. So he, our album got to number two, and James's album, they reissued it uh, with uh, Sit Down, and it got to number one. So he produced like a number one, number two album, and he only got paid two and a half grand for each of the albums. So he didn't have any points on it. So that was a bit unfair. You know, in looking back on it, it's a bit of a shame. Second album we did with um, Chris Nagel, and uh, it was a difficult time because the band growing pains, you know, with the band and trying to reproduce that commercial success, working with them with Mutes, which we hadn't done with the first album, and so I think we felt that it was artistically successful, it wasn't commercially successful. So Mute wanted Pascal to work on the third album. Matt Pascal was good because he's very funky, and he also had a great had a lot of technology and he had a great understanding of how to integrate technology with inspiration. And I think that worked very well on that album. And like Drag Me Down was the first single that uh, came from that creative workshop, working with him. So Devil Hopping, sorry, um, Revenge of the Goldfish was the third album. Devil Hopping was the fourth album. And then we tried to do some demoing with Ed Buller, who'd done a lot of, done most of Suede stuff, but it wasn't. This was when we didn't have any more records with us. And that was disastrous. That recording session was disastrous. He was, um, he'd been the keyboard player and, in uh, Psychotech Furs, and uh, he, uh, you know, he'd turn up at the studio at two o'clock in the afternoon because his wife was having her first baby, and we'd just do nothing. So right. Wherever the was studio was, Pink Floyd's old studio in London, in Camden, for hours on end, doing nothing really. Yes. None of it. And what was it like with that kind of, you know, because we'd had the slight shoegazing world, then we had the grunge world of Seattle, and then Britpop was appearing as well, and you know, the the birth of, well, not the birth, but the, the rise of people like, you know, Creation Records and Oasis. Did that, was that kind of inspirational for the band? And, and It was. Know. I mean, what happened with us is, you know, people have said, in retrospect, people have said, would you have signed back? We'd never have signed back. We thought how badly at the end of the stuff. And although Factory had had your Happy Mondays, Tristy Column, ACR, you order Joy Division, OMD for one record. I'm sure there's someone else who was really good on it as well, but I forgot. Uh, but they were clueless, really, about about. I thought they were pretty clueless about how to release records. And so what we did was we just hired Creations Press Guy um, to do our press, which was uh, so famous. The guy set up Heavenly Records, Jeff Barrett. Oh yes, used to work for him. We just hired Creation News for TV and radio plugging, which was Nikki Kafalas. So we just basically. Paid them five hundred pound a month out of gig, gig and t-shirt sales, and we didn't, we didn't need, we wouldn't have signed to factory, great label, boutique label, just did it whatever they wanted, but we wouldn't have been able to get priority with them. That label they already had, you know, New Order and Happy Mondays and Northside as well. To be fair, so yes, I think they'd. I think they had Meow with Kath Carroll at one stage, didn't they? Oh, great, great. But it, it, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have got any priority with that later. No, no, not at all. Did you start playing festivals? Were you at Glastonbury in that kind of early 90s period? No, we played Glastonbury in 94. We played the NME stage. Um, uh, we played Phoenix Festival in 94. We, we headlined Reading Festival in 1990. We did the Saturday night in 1990. Yes. I think the cramps did the night for us and the pixies did the night after us. So that was really good. And how did you go down in America? Was was that successful? We were, but we went over. We had a manager called Anthony and uh, we went over there and we 
we there was some debate. We had like a, a worldwide deal with Mute, but there was some debate over whether we could go with Geffen or Electra. And we decided that we should go with Electra. And I think I expect that was a mistake because they had happy Mondays. And our manager went to go and meet the people from Electra. And the thing about Americans is they don't really like music business people, they don't really like talking to people who aren't American, really. If you, if you want to have a meeting in America, in your English, you say, right, first off, I know all you American bastards don't really like talking to people who aren't American. Well, I don't give a fuck. You have to listen to what I'm saying. This is what we're going to do. You've got. You've got us, you've got Happy Mondays. Happy Mondays. Sorry, this is what you're saying, but they're, you know, they're musically, they're absolutely genius, but actually, sort of in terms of a, at that time, on a day to day management sort of schedule, they'd be a nightmare. So, like, you want them to do 80 radio interviews, I don't, they're not going to do any of them, you know. And then there's a story that um, we used to, we used to uh, have the same Florida bus company, which was the people who drove around America. Happy Mondays had been on the guy's bus and they'd broken something and he'd been asleep and he woke up. They'd broken part of his bus and he lived on this bus and he was really proud of it. And he said, uh, it's going to be like $500 to fix that. And they just looked at him weirdly, got a shotgun out and threatened them and suddenly gave him 500 bucks. And that, that's not a band that's going to make, it's going to do well. And that's not to decry them as a band because they're a great band and they're really funny people. But in America, you need people who are going to be able to turn up and, and do the work really in a way. So like, so like when our manager went there, he blew the meeting, and the A and R guy said, "Your manager just blew blow the meeting because instead of saying what you want, listen to what they said." And then it's like, if unless you say this is the vision for the band, Oasis did the same thing. Oasis had a radio hit with Wonderwall in America, and by the way, not to criticise them, but, but and they were doing really well, and the band kind of fell out and, and cancelled the tour, whatever, and they were never going to. That. I mean, sure, Oasis can do gigs in front of thousands of people. I mean, if they were together now. They'd be able to do gigs in front of thousands of people in America. I'm not saying that, but when you have a radio hit in America, that's your opportunity to really cross over a big style like The Cure did or, you know, or Depeche did, you know. So so they blew their radio hit. They had, they had a hit in, in America and they blew it. Yes, that's right. So you're, so really the management for you at that stage was the, the reason that America didn't sort of happen. I don't think it was just that. I think that... Um, you know what? What we should have done is we should have done a tour. We should have done a tour with Happy Mondays, and what we should have done is we should have had like their shambolic brilliance and our kind of psychedelic, more business like things. But you know, the problem with this is that people would accrue they they claim that they were involved with you when they weren't. So like Paul Combs used to work at the Happy Monday. You know, he he booked the society tour in America pretty much off the way back. We were entrepreneurial. We wanted to put a song. We went over and we did maybe I can't remember eight, twelve gigs. Across America entirely, maybe it was more entirely off our own back to '89, and uh, so Paul Collins from the Hacienda just said that it was Hacienda sponsored at all. Absolutely nothing to do with it at all. They didn't do a single thing. Absolutely no, no, they didn't take any part in organising any of it at all. And I did, you know, I sort of fell out with them slightly over that. It's like you didn't pay us any money. You had no involvement at all. Had absolutely no involvement with it at all. So there's a lot of that that goes on. Going back to your story earlier, Creation were really big. In the early early eighties phase, had so many great bands. Yes, the bands never really hit because it was too much. Of, obviously, Alan McGee's a genius, but it was too much of a London thing. I've always had the feeling that there was you'd get a band, and the London-based media would just push and push and push this band. Obviously, the individual people are really talented, but Kaniki, my God, they had so much press in relation to anything. It doesn't mean they weren't a good band. Not 
there was, I'm not making a nasty comment about Kaniki, but they had so, and the individually people in it have gone on to be massively successful. They had so much press, but really no record sales, very little, very little attention. Yes. So we became successful in despite of the fact that the London-based press didn't really want to write about us. They didn't want to write about us. They were really within five minutes they were bored of us and wanted to be really read about us. So you know we got successful in despite of that. And then there's a whole thing, you know, bands like Shed Seven came along later and like I'm not going to go into it, but they got a bit of a panning from the enemy, and that appears to be because at some point early on in the great band supported us, but at some point early on in their career, then someone in their management got someone in the media to do some work for them and didn't pay them. And that's why they always got slacked off. <laughs> always got slacked off on radio and the enemy because one of the people who was in that PR angle who basically did those two jobs didn't get paid for some small piece of work they did. There's another band who could have been very successful. I'm not going to go into who they are, you know. And early on in their career, one of the band members was accused of having molested a woman that completely blighted all their career. Uh, I'm not talking about whether it's true or not true but that was, no that was the shadow that followed them around um you know and that kind of destroyed their career so it's easy so easy for your career we, we were successful i think in despite of who we were i think we were successful the press hated it because they didn't control us they didn't feel they could control it so very early on um you know we started getting in the neck and there was like a i'm not going to go into who wrote it but there was a kind of made-up novel which we, we, about the rock and roll business, where the, the person who wrote it kind of um, wrote about an apocryphal band that was an amalgamation of loads of different bands. So I'm not going to say what the book is. Then on about page 250 in it, it goes into a massive diatribe about what, how, how awful and spiral carpets were and stuff. And it's like, well, excuse me, mate, you were managing a band at that time. We were dealing ecstasy out of your, your company office, and that's where you made all your money. You didn't make money from selling records at all. So like, maybe I'll write an apocryphal novel about a band and on page 250 i'll go on about the fact that this person who wrote this novel made most of the money by dealing ecstasy out there you know it's a little bit rich that having a go at us we fell out with the press because we sat uh jeff and our manager didn't do it properly not everything in our career was our manager's fault we probably wouldn't have been successful without him he was very yes. good he was so the manager it's called carpet burns where i go through all of this and i do say you probably wouldn't have been successful with the guy. No, but it's interesting because I did an interview with a member of a band called the Bardos, who were based in Norwich, and and they they were told, look, from the Melody Maker, we'll make your singles two singles, you know, single of the weeks, and then by the third one, we'll you'll be big. And then suddenly they supported Slate Suede, and they, you know, and sure enough, their two singles came out record of the week in the Melody Maker, and then suddenly this. A review of their live concert where they were supporting Slate, uh, Suede came out completely slagged them, and they said they 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 just didn't recover from that review. And that, but that was you know talking about was the record. On a label? Was it on a label? They were on a label, which I can't remember what it was now. But um, if you really are successful, there's almost no crime you can commit at that time. As if you're going from that very indie kind of what we we really we really mean indie, saying indie, we're not talking about an eight hundred pound haircut bloody band wearing off last week it's all about real genuine indie you know and, and you know at that time if you were successful that's almost the worst crime you could commit because they couldn't really stop you and that was the crime that shed seven had they, they were successful people liked them they liked their music and i remember i remember an, an episode an edition of the enemy where they were synchronously slagging shed seven off and saying the killers were good to me there's at least one single by the killers where they sound exactly like Shed Seven. 
What's the one's called Backburner, and you know they got some Backburner. That was one called On Standby. It's like it could have been. It was like it could have been Shed Seven. This song. So this single, this song was single of the week by the Killers. Like Shed Seven. Oh no, they're they're, they're the Devil Incarnate. They're only the Devil Incarnate because someone didn't get paid for a bit of work. <laughs> yeah. That's my theory about it. You know, there's lots of funny. There's lots of funny things in music. You know, I'll tell you this funny little thing I've got. I've got this whole, I mean, it's partly, a bit, I mean, look, I'm not saying I could do a comedy routine, but I do think it's quite funny, you know. I learned a lot about the music business in 1988 because the band I was in too much Texas we hired this double double first. We, stood, we drove around Manchester singing our single off the top of it. We drove around the Apollo and Bros were playing at the Apollo at that time. I've got this whole rant about Bros. So, like, this shows the insanity of the music business. You've got this band that's made up of two identical twins and a guy called Craig, right? So after the first single is a big hit, two brothers moan and get and get the other person to leave the band, right? So Craig wasn't in the band after that point. They never had another hit after that, really, and maybe they would never have done anyway. But so right, but look at this man situation. You've got three people in in a boy band. You've got two identical twins, and a, and the other guy who isn't an identical twin. How do you know that a third of your fans don't like the one who isn't an identical twin? How do you know that half of your fans don't like the one who isn't an identical twin? How do you know that 99% of your fans don't like the one who isn't an identical twin? If you're going to sack anyone out of a band that's made out of two identical twins, the guy who's an identical twin, you would sack one of the people who's an identical twin because you can just film the remaining one from two different angles. Shows from the pop angle. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It doesn't, so they were never, I mean, they may have had this half-life of success. You know, one of them singing on Broadway or whatever it is, and them having Sky documentaries made about them. But you could, that, that is some hubris, that. How could you sack the one person who isn't an identical? So the music business is all based on vagaries. It's not based on verities. It's based on, this is my view. Yes. You know, you know in the same way that, you know, you know, uh, you know, Deacon Blue, you know, Deacon Blue, you know, I mean, successful band, done some good stuff. You know, why are they successful? They're partly successful because when they started out, to me, they sounded like Prefab Sprout, but Prefab Sprout wouldn't do gigs. Yes. You know, so, you know that there's, uh, you know, you, you have this thing as well, you know, I've always had this feeling about um, Last Shadow Puppets, you know, Arctic Monkeys, you know, and this shows how out of touch I am, you know. There was this thing like with Duran Duran who I never liked, you know, I, I strongly dislike them. And actually, I've been very unfair about them as a band just in my head. You know, like, I think <sighs> Simon and Bond, he became big mates with sort of Lady Diana, blah, blah, blah. You know, at one point in his sort of most pompous stage, he got like a big yacht, you know, he did some yacht race and it, and it collapsed. For about yeah. two hours, I was hoping he drowned, you know. That's how much I disliked Duran Duran. I just, you know, just because I play music, you know, which is very unfair because I've seen documentary room he's a really nice bloke but anyway so what Jan Dram did so they've been around for about five six seven years massively overexposed so they're, we're going to take two years off we're, oh that's good they're going to take two years off the lambs then half of the band forms a band called the power station with Robert Flower the other half of the band forms some band called Arcadia so they're now producing twice as many records and doing twice as many you know I understand he needs to fuck off and go away <laughs> so the same thing with the guy out of Arctic Monkeys, he went off to this this shadow puppets thing. I think it's awful. I mean, awful. It's absolutely awful. 
Now, it's dreadful. The, the second album, they dressed up as the Beatles. They did a video where they look like the Beatles. Help! Just go and watch Help! It's just something I don't get here. Am I missing something? I don't, but I don't understand why bands, when they're overexposed, they, they, they form other bands that then overexpose and overexpose. Like, this is just my funny little world. Maybe yes. Talking of funny, funny little bands, though, but you did a working with Marky Smith on your single "I Want You." What was that experience like? It's all in my book, Carpet Burns. But I mean, the thing is, we decided we didn't want to do remixes on the last album we did with Mew, and um, we thought a lot of remixes weren't very good. And so I said I'd ring up Basil from Yargo. This black guy he sang in a band. Yargo, really good. Clint said he'd ring up Mark. So Mark said he'd do track two tracks. He said he'd do one ballad and one sort of ranty one so we got he came over to the studio and he recorded Saturn 5 but I never thought Saturn 5 really was the track for him to do I thought he should do a version of I Want You so we did I Want You and there was a very expensive German microphone in the studio which has to be plugged in for two days before you can even use it it's probably made in the 30s or something under a rather dodgy government I imagine anyway so I said to Cliff Norell who's the engineer he was Pascal was producing the album, but Cliff Norell was the engineer, and Cliff Norell actually produced Paul, Paul's Boutique by Beastie Boys. He did two albums, engineered two albums by REM, like Automatical People, and um, and whatever the other one was, any Green, I think it was. So he's he did. So I said, you better put that, you better put that microphone away. So gave Mark like a Neumann mic, and within five minutes he broke this Neumann mic. So he recorded that, and Clint comped it. And the record company said, you can do a single with Mark, because Mark had pretty much alienated himself with everyone in the music business at that point. But you have to do a video, you have to do an enemy interview, you have to do a Melody Maker interview, and you have to do Top of the Pop, should it happen. So we did all of those things. And the video shoot, like Mark didn't really want to do the video shoot. So like, second run through, he threw the SM58 microphone at the cameraman, or the director, off his eye. And the guy's eye was going like this. Mark was hoping he was going to say, we're all going to go home. The guy said, right, let's do the next shot. Let's pick up the next shot. And he also tried to walk off with the quite expensive Italian suit. Uh, and this quite camp uh, guy was asking, Mark, can we have the suit back, please? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we, we did the anime interview. We did the movie making suit. We get to number 18 in the charts. We're doing Top of the Pop. Right down to Top of the Pop. The first run through. And then our TV plugger, uh, Nikki, he always spoke very quietly, which is a great way of controlling rooms if you always talk really quietly. She comes and she goes, so like he said, Don't, the director doesn't want Mark on the show. We sort of threw up like three or four like problems, some of which were short, long term problems, being to one of them was a very distinct short term problem. So, like, so like the, the long thing is, well, look, we've we've kind of done everything you've asked. It's like making hair soup first, catch your hair. We've done everything you've asked. We've done the song. We've done a video. We've done an enemy interview. We've done a melody wake interview. We've got it to number 18 in the charts, right? So now you don't want Mark to do it, right? So, so this throws up a very serious problem, which is, first off, we are going to do it with Mark. But the second one is, who's going to tell him that he's not doing it? <laughs> no, it be me. But, if the whole of your career, if you'd had, if you were as famous as the Beatles or Elton John or, or if you had had a very short career, you know, like Bradford or the Bobby Birds, 
if if the the, the the actual apotheosis of your career was you had the decision whether you should appear on top of the tops with Marquis Smith or not, I think you know what the decision is. I'll fucking do the Marquis. Sensibly won't do it. And that was occasionally someone sends me the bond and I watch it and I'm just like, you know, if there were 30 great moments on top of the pops, I think it's almost impossible to say that that isn't one of them. That's a, it's a tremendous moment, you know. And people said to me, because like they had this real kind of apartheid on top of the pops. If you were a boy band, you could mine the vocals. If you were some shitty indie band they didn't really want on there, you had to do live vocals. So like Mark said, all of them spiral carpets are cool, except for Clint, because he's in love. And he's doing all this. And I'm having to sing around this. <laughs> it's a sing while this thing's going on. And it's just not just a sonic thing. It's the whole, you know, it's the whole psych thing that's going on as well. It's like, it's like, it's like trying to sing at the state funeral while someone's tickling you under the arms with uh, feathers and someone's saying, fire to your hair with a... <laughs> <laughs> also, you know, it's brilliant. I love it. You know, so that was the biggest thing we ever did as a band. Brilliant, you know. And then, you know, I get a bit annoyed really because later on, you know, um, Gorillas played at Glastonbury or we had Mark on stage. We get Mark. Well, I actually have to sit in the back of the van while he's stubbing cigarettes out on the on the cushions. You know, you know, it's like it's we'd already been there. It's like, come on, yes. So, so one you then when when the Inspiral Club carpets finished, you then sort of work with is it Jem Kelly at this stage? In after, sorry, getting the chronology right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I did a band called The Lovers with Jem, and we did some recording, which was really good. But you know, he, I mean, what would happen was when we were doing the last album, the last album for Mute, uh, things were maybe not that good really between the band, and you know, and that, that's not anyone's fault. It's just the way it was, and maybe we were a little bit. Unstrung from having been in a commercial band for two or three years, and it's not easy. It takes its toll on relationships, marriage, and stuff like that. And yes, I do probably five or six hours in in the studio in Liverpool, and I go to Jem's house, and we do another <laughs> hour or two hours in his on his little eBay setup around his flat. You know, so and what was because he'd worked with members of like the the Wild Swans, and also the. Lotus Lotus Eaters as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the history of Jam is quite complicated because there's a lot of different people who've got different views about what happened, you know, and it's one of those bands where it maybe didn't all end up that well between the participants who'd been in the band. Suffice to say that both the Lotus Eaters and the Wild Swans were great bands, you know, so there's quality in all the people who were involved in those bands. So I don't, I don't want to go rehearse too much what happened with those bands because... He did some really good music and all the people. Oh, there. yes, genius, actually. But how did you get on with him? Well, I mean, you know, I'm quite different maybe from other people he worked with because, like, like um, obviously, worked with Paul and he worked with Peter and they're both, they're just, I'd say they're just, they're all, I mean, this, they're really aesthetically sort of artists, whereas me, half the time, I'm concerned about Renting a sulfur vowel, I ran from somewhere. I never, I never get, you know, the, I'm being entirely complimentary, the kind of artists in their own right. Whereas with me, it's a little bit more worrying about whether we've got any t shirts for the next tour. I never, I never found it that easy to um, take my foot off the kind of business side of things. You know? 
Yes. In our estates, I think, in a, in a positive way, in a great way, as, as Jem is too, you know. You know, the music is, you know, the, the I mean, I know the Lotus Eater stuff better than maybe the Wild Swan stuff, which is really good as well, but it really is sort of very romantic and very, where they were coming from, the distance travel to artists is magnificent. It's, and it's also very not status quo. <laughs> it's imaginative and masculine in a way that's really interesting and really off the piece stuff and really good. You know, both, yeah. both. But you, you know, people have big, you know, people have got this great imaginations and this great passion for what they're doing, and that doesn't make for easy relationships between people, does it? I don't think. You know. No, no, there's um I think there was a but what was it like? Because there was very much more of a Liverpool scene than Manchester, wasn't it? This that you'd walked in with Jim. Yeah, I mean, but you know, I don't think there's always been two binary opposites. I mean, Oasis's first album sounds like a band sounds like a band from Liverpool. You know, so there's always been a little bit of cross pollination between Manchester and Liverpool. You know, there's a lot of in co- there's a lot of common between Manchester and Liverpool. There's two big Irish cities. You know, big Irish families everywhere, and uh, you know, very creative. And although people, I mean, I'm a southerner, but people don't want to admit it. Actually, each city is a bit jealous of something else the other city's got. Yeah. You know. So, what you was know. the reason for the the band sort of reforming again in 2003? Uh, well, I think. They just wanted to do some some unfinished business. We they put out this the, the the first singles compilation record that got put out was put out after they dropped us and we wouldn't get involved in promoting it. So the running order was wrong on the back, you know. Personally, I, the first Inspiral Carpet singles compilation, the cover on it had a kind of swirl on it. I felt it like it was they were trying to. It, to me, that looked like the Oasis logo, and it came out in '95, and I found that quite a switch off, really, like trying to sort of associate us with this thing that came around afterwards, which I think is erroneous, really. But they, you know, they, they were just, you know, the record labels need to make money just like anyone else does, you know. So we got back together because also when we initially signed to Mute, I wouldn't let them, I wouldn't let them sign the band's first four singles because they licensed them, which meant that once they dropped us, they didn't have the right to read the jinx of the early singles, like find out why and move because they didn't own them. So those, those, contracts had run out so they wanted to renew those contracts between putting the record back out again and we decided that we'd tour with it but i didn't instantly join in on it it, it took him a couple of months to persuade me to actually do the two thing with the band just for my own personal reasons because when the band ended in 95 and there's no anger about it i had three children under the age of three and i was basically redundant in 1995 i had three children under the age of three and i felt the band could have gone on at that time so when and got back together in 2003. I was wary of putting all my eggs in one basket because I didn't really want to be in that situation again. Where yes, eight gigs and then not, but you know, everyone's got their own, everyone's got their own lives, everyone's got their own angle and their own agenda, what they need to do. And that's mine isn't going to be anyone else's. No, so did, did you because you left the band then for good in 2011? Was that a, a mutual decision that, that you it's all in my book, really? You need to read in the book. I don't want to rake over all the coals. No, because it's an ongoing and active thing. And if I start going, going over the top of the trenches, it will just make people upset. And I don't think that's a good thing to do. No, God, Jesus, no. So I to say, we don't agree about how I ceased to be in the band. I did send a tweet saying that the band had split up, which I shouldn't have done, and it was it was um, a foolish and silly thing to do. It'd been quite a difficult been quite a difficult series of things that led up to that point and i know that 
heard an interview where Graham talked about it, and uh, you know, I did. He, he he told me to take the tweet down, which I did, and then six months later, they called me to a meeting where they sacked me, and that, that's what happened. So it's all in my book, Carpet yes. Worm. But they've continued on, and then obviously, um, Craig passed away in 2016, so they're now touring. Martin's not in the band at the moment. But, you know, it was a good ride when it lasted. You know, people still love the music and people love what they're doing. Uh, that's okay. Yes, absolutely. That's all good. So then you, you've then sort of gone on to a solo career and various other sidelines as well. Yeah, well, I've had, I had another version of The Lovers, which had my wife Kelly Wood in it. And we had Paul and Steve Hanley out of the fall in it. And we had a guitarist called Jason Brown. Another guy called Andy Tarling played guitar for us. Another guy. Ray played guitar for us a while, but that band existed from sort of 2001 up till about 2012. And actually, the band got back together and did a gig in Manchester, a gig in London this year, just for a bit of fun. Uh, most of that band went on to become Rick Smith and the Extricators. In fact, it was exactly the same. Yes. Same band, just it had Steve Trafford in it and Rick Smith. It didn't have me or Kelly in it, uh, but they were more successful with Rick Smith than we were. And that was. That was good to see, but then Briggs just she kind of um, dissolved that kind of band at the back end of last year. Uh, then I've uh, had another band to come in Spark Up, this tribute band called The Carpets. Uh, we played at Shine On. We've done a gig in Paris. Um, uh, we uh, yeah, we've done we've probably done about hundred gigs with that band, but we've never made out the Inspire Carpets. We just played Spark Carpets material, and that's with a drummer called Malcolm Law. Uh, we had a bass player called Steve Pierce. There's another guy called Dave Murray, sometimes plays bass. Got a guitarist called Phil McIntyre. There's another guy called Carl Mark, and he sometimes plays guitar. We've had three different keyboard players. We've had a guy called Dick and uh, who play keyboards, Dick and Kyle White. We've had a guy called Andy uh, Sewardson, who was the bass player in the Mock Turtles, who's played keyboards for us. And we've got a guy called Lee Shackley, who sometimes plays keyboards for us. So that's a band that we've toured over the last since 2016 onwards that's taken a little bit of a back seat since spirals are touring and I don't think I mean people want to go and see in spirals and that's okay but there's not enough people out there who want to go and see someone doing the same material that isn't in spirals so that's okay but then I'm doing this band with Gordon who I was in too much Texas we did this record called Decades that came out um, this year because before the pandemic his sister and his dad died within three weeks of one another and I went to see him at the end of November 2021. He was kind of suicidal, really. And I said, it was his 60th birthday this year. And I said, look, we'll do a record and we'll do a gig for his 60th birthday. So we did this record called Decades, which is partly a memorial. There's a song about his daddy and a song about my sister, uh, Angela. There's also some pretty dark stuff on there as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, so that's it's a bit like, people said to me, what's it like? It's sort of like moldy peaches without the peaches. There's a song there about Muhammad Ali, Coming to our hometown, Abingdon, he, he, the guy who ran his his fan club was called Paddy Nash guy, who actually was quite involved in the Northern Irish peace process in the seventies and eighties. And he came to Abingdon, our hometown, probably a few times in the seventies and eighties. And and Abingdon's very sort of white middle class conservative town. There's not a plaque anywhere to say that the most famous man in the world. <laughs> it's been there several times in the seventies and eighties. So the song is a slightly piss take out of the town going on about various things that happened on the day with Muhammad, things that might have happened or didn't happen. So yes. it goes on about toast burning. It, it's all cultural references to places that, have long, places that have long gone, so it refers to a cafe called Water Cafe. It's a toast is burned 
in Wolves Cafe the day that Ali, the day that Ali came to Hamilton. So it's to the tune of when the Saints come marching in. Uh, so it's uh, it's yeah, but it's so it you know so it says like it talks about the fact we used to smoke solid cannabis in the park <laughs> and stuff, and it talks about the old Abbey which was smashed up with Henry VIII uh, in the Reformation, and it talks about the Civil War because a lot of Civil War the place where the Chancellor Checking used to live was an Abbey. Basically, it's a dig at the town for not remembering the most famous black man in the world visited there. Yes, God, there's no, not a blue plaque, but also you've got dates coming up this autumn, haven't you, with uh, black grape. Oh, with Black Grape, I'm doing, uh, well, my tribute band, The Carpet, doing my date, playing in Birmingham the Mill on the 22nd of November. We're playing just Albert Hall on the 23rd of November. And, yeah, then Van's doing a gig up in Scotland and Paisley on the 4th, and then we're doing gigs in Cardiff. Sorry, London on the 1st of December, then Cardiff, and then Southampton. Yes. So who's booking, is that? That who's that with? You know, that's um, with the carpets. That's with the band that does Inspiral Carpets. Sort of right. Thing. So, is the, how did you get the gig with Black Grape? They just contacted us and asked us to do it. <laughs> right. The, the, the promoter just does. Um, is Alan McGee still sort of part of that kind of setup with Black Grape? Yeah, yeah, he matches them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also, I saw on your website you sell bitter as well. Is this still true? I don't do that so much. It was a little bit of a joke because Stephen is the other singer. I said, oh, the bitter about the whole spiral singer, the beer name got. So, is, the, is it right then that music has always just been your full time occupation, or have you had to sort of do No, work? I worked at a catalogue company after Inspiral Carpets ceased. It was the hiatus from 1995. I worked there. It's all in my book. I worked there, chain smoked, and worked at this catalogue company. And then after about a week, when people worked out being in the band, people started telling me that I was I was acting weird. I wasn't at all. I never told anyone I was in the band. I never denied it if they asked me. I did wasn't acting any different. So I did that and had a clothes shop in Athens Palace from 1995 about 2002, selling women's clubwear. That was quite funny. Right, blimey. So with a few live dates, do you have any new material that you're going to be recording? Well, I've got an album that's called The Grand Mal, which we're waiting to do the artwork for, and it's already mixed. It's, uh, that record, the disc, is just going to have a QR code on the front of it and a barcode on the back of it. It's going to have its own website with all the copy on it. Because we're just going to take some beautiful pictures of ugly things, and that's what's going to be in the artwork for it. So I don't want... All the copies will be all over the artwork. So yes, there's a there's a like a in the gym I go to. It's like a council gym and stuff. I'm very not David Lloyd. Uh, there's a, like a, a square polystyrene tile that you would never put in any building now because it would burn up quicker than a Roman candle. But anyway, and it's had like some maybe soil pipe or something dripping on the top of it, and right in the middle of it, there's this big concentric circle that looks like a tree trunk cut in half. So I've taken a picture of that because it looks really beautiful, but it's really horrible. So yes. there's a of things in the we found an oil stain that uh, was on the road, which is sort of beautiful, but sort of quite ugly. So it's all sort of things that have innate beauty that are actually polluted. So is this, is this the album that's following up your last solo, um, Hymns for the Hungry, or has there been any other between well, I did them? this Decades album with Mackay Hingley, which is a different Decades album track album, which is the band called Mackay Hingley for decades. It's on Spotify if you want to hear it. So we're doing another record with that band as well, but that's quite a long process because we live down in Oxford and I live up in Manchester. So we do a bit of recording 
in the studio in St. Mary's near Banbury that used to be Dave Pegg's studio at Fairport Convention. Like right. And, uh, you know, Radiohead recorded there when they were teenagers before they had a deal. Uh, um, George Harrison recorded there. Uh, Fairport Convention have recorded there. Unfortunately, there's no, I, I don't think Gary Barlow has ever recorded there, which I will say is, is something Shame. Yes, that's amazing. So look, if you were to be able to whisper something like something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular that you would have gone, oh yes, there would have been something interesting, even if that person ignored you? Uh, I think I'd say get back to learning the piano. I mean, I've been having piano lessons for the last year and a half, and I could have been a really good, I'm sounding very up myself in this interview, but I could have been a really good pianist if I just stuck with it. But I have this weird combination of things. I'm quite well coordinated, but I don't have any body confidence. I think I'm neurodiverse. I think nowadays we'd say I've got ADHD, which sounds like the world's worst ACD tribute band, but ACDC tribute band. But I think I probably have ADHD because I'm quite clumsy. I was always terrible at maths. And people people just told you that you were stupid. Mm. <laughs> if you went to school, we maybe. You had it too. You went to school in the 80s. You were just told you were stupid and lazy, if actually you were just neurodiverse. Yes. And uh, so I think I'm probably... Near, so what I say to my 16-year-old self is just don't, don't take things so personally. And yeah, don't take things so personally and try and chill out a bit more and enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. Did you... Um, I mean, when you started your sort of rocky... Um, gym sessions, only 80 minute sessions in the gym. When when did that start? Well, I started swimming about 20 years ago because I had to have a hernia operation. Um, so I've been exercising sort of on and off for the last 20 years, but I've been doing that probably. My mum died in 2015, so I started exercising a lot more heavily after that. But I think it's good for the old brain as well as the corporeal, corporeal matter. But I meditate as well now. So I do that most days. And, you know, like there was some god awful right-wing garbage on facebook today it's obviously like a data collection but someone saying that i think it was american saying that kids ought to pray in school it's like garbage that but ch- children ought to be taught how to meditate yes to- this is this is actually useful <laughs> yes have, have less sugar and meditate would be much better wouldn't it really so um yeah so and um obviously yes these are these are life-changing patterns aren't they habits are the most important thing and i think um Yes, a good workout is is helps to keep you grounded, really. So um We've got it, you know, the thing about meditation and exercise is that we live I don't mean you and me, but in the West we live far too much in our heads. And we need to be more aware of our bodies. You know, I mean I'm a depressive me and I at least swim a lot. And swimming's quite good for me because you come up with crazy ideas that you don't someone said when you get get in a bit when you go and swim in a pool or in water, you leave all your troubles behind and all you get out again. I think on it on it short-term basis that's true but there's something if you're a depressive which i am i get black dogs and stuff like that there's something about pulling your own body through a weight of water that convinces you that your body is actually quite impressive and your brain's just one one seat of learning in you your body actually you know it's you it's, it's almost like a dictator your brain can become a dictator sometimes you need to live in your body you need to live in the moment a little bit more and i think both exercise and music of course Yes, and do music. All my music, though, because I'm a bit of a soul singer, a bit of a blues singer, a bit of a punk singer, a bit of a folk singer, a bit of a rock singer. And there is a problem that sometimes you just, you know, that song, The Load by the band, that sometimes you take everyone's grief on yourself. And that's what you do as a singer. So you have to watch you're not taking everyone's 
bad vibes off them and then sticking them into what was, what was that song called the load the load you know the one about give the load to annie give the load oh yes i know i think you know i i think that's kind of what they're singing about you can take people's troubles away by singing but you might be just putting them on yourself sometimes yes were you always conscious i mean we mentioned interest in front men and possibly women in the past and probably now were you aware of your own some you know rock star diva behavior i don't i think i've i think i have a real lack of self-awareness about my lack of self-awareness unfortunately that answers your question but no i mean I, I i can behave like a diva but then i have actually put up with a lot of shit off people as well i think singers have a really hard time denise johnson was a friend of mine she was treated very badly I think singers do sometimes get treated very badly, and people think that uh, I can behave like a diva. But I, I, you know, like you know, throughout all of my career, I've always carried loads of gear everywhere, and there's always been jokes among some bands that, oh yeah, you're a singer, you don't carry gear. I carry more fucking gear than anyone I've ever met. I'm getting to the point now where I carry something, and I bloody knees hurting for the next two weeks. I've got to the point where I have to stop doing that because actually physically, got... what I'm saying is yes, I do. I behave like a diva, but then again, um, I probably am. It's, it's possible I might be the best singer you've ever heard. So, you know, if I was a diva and I was shit, I think that'd be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I, I would, I genuinely would do most things for people to help people. I can. Yes. Um, I think singers have a few layers of skin missing, but I do think singers, I think they get treated badly. I think they do. Because people think it's like talking. Oh, because it's coming out your mouth. It's like talking. It isn't really. Singing is something completely different. It's, you know, like if someone had to say to me, right, you've got to walk out now and sing to 80,000 people, I could do that. If someone said to me, uh, someone's just got run over and you've got to go and hold their hand until the ambulance comes, I could do that. I'm a terrible coward. I'm almost like almost everything else. I can do those. Those are skills that I have. And I have that ability to read an audience, have that ability to know how to talk to an audience. And that's something that you can't really learn. You've either kind of got it or you haven't got it. I come alive on stage. I'm, I'm a quite a small person off stage, I think. Mm. Um, so so all those things, but they're not. We, we've got to kind of, we dismiss, I don't think you do, but we kind of dismiss showmanship in Britain. In Britain, you know, that I read a, a, a book about glam rock. Might be one that you've read. And in it, the guy was talking about Hendrix, and he was slanging slang Hendrix off because he was saying he'd done this chitling circuit in America and he used to do somersaults while playing and setting fire to his guitar. This is a rhetorical question; it's not directed at you. It's like, wouldn't you, if you'd done eight, if you'd done three hundred gigs in one year, wouldn't you get bored shitless? You do things to make sure you actually go on playing the music correctly. That's why he did all those things. It's not because it's inauthentic. It's not because. You know, it's not it's not inauthentic. He did it to keep himself awake and focused. Things that I I do that are sort of showmanship things because they keep you alive and keep you awake. And that's not something. There's nothing bad about that at all. We kind of I saw James Brown play about thirty years ago at Birmingham NEC, and I went with my friend Paul, and they had a guy who introduced the guy who introduced the guy who introduced the guy who introduced the guy who introduces him. You know, and it was almost like watching some kind of. State funeral went off like 25 minutes. And just at the moment where you almost left, lost the will to live, James Brown comes on stage. And guess what happens? Everyone in the place stood up. That's showmanship. But they wouldn't have done that if he was shit. 
Yes. <laughs> he that if he wasn't, he, he didn't have the ability to get like a, like someone with a hand puppet to get inside the audience and just completely turn the whole way around that they feel. And that's what being a front person is, not just sitting there, open your mouth. <laughs> the other thing with singers is this, you know, it doesn't matter if the ticket is 25 quid, 15 quid, five quid, 500 quid, five grand. If you can't, as a singer, if you can't make the people feel like they've got their, 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 their value in their ticket from singing five songs, get the fuck off stage because you shouldn't be doing it. So you should be able to, you should be able to make the audience feel like they've, they've got, uh, as a singer, that's part that they've got their money's worth. Yes. You don't need to be singing 30 songs. And, uh, you know, and, and the other thing is, you know, I, I do, sometimes I do big gigs, sometimes I do very little gigs. I do really little gigs and there's only seven, 10 people there. They're really hard gigs to do. I don't mind doing them as long as two people aren't talking about their form for Mondeo. They do that. I have to say to them, don't mind playing to like 10 people, but you, you're going to have to shut up. <laughs> Not play to t- 10 people where two of them are talking about the form Mondeo. And I, I, I'll just go home because I, I can't do that. Um, the other thing is, when you're doing gigs, it's always good to sing something that is very different because you might get a couple of folk on there and only one person actually wants to watch you play. It's always worth seeing something that's completely different from everything else because that other person might like it. And then that makes both of their evening. Yes, absolutely. I've been singing like um, um, Wild is the Wind, you know, I do kind of version of Bowie's version of Wild is the Wind because he's not around to sing it anymore. I really like the song. I can't sing it like him, but that's the sort of thing where it gets inside people and think, oh, God, I didn't know he sang stuff like that. So you always want to do something where you're singing against type. You may be pulling in the constituency. You, you got dragged there. He didn't really want to go there because you kind of melt their hearts and then they get into it as much as everyone else. So there's yes. a lot of That's showmanship, you see. And people is... frown on that in Britain, but they didn't when we had Vaudeville or, you know, you know, you know they didn't then, did they? they music halls, that was, that was it, you know. That was the ether that the music existed in. I don't think it is inauthentic, you know. I think it's, you know, sometimes in Britain, I'm not talking about where you're coming from or the indie thing. Sometimes, you know, there have been times in British music where if they didn't have the right trainers on, then they wouldn't be successful. Uh, I've just got to talk to my wife. And that, dear listener, is going to be the end of the interview. We will come to the end anyway, but then there was an interruption from the... Yes, uh, at the door, so uh, Tom had to go, and I said, that's fine. So we had a quick chat, and that was it, really. It was goodbye, good luck, and um, see you in the future, in theory. Anyway, look, a massive thank you, as always, to Tom Hingley for giving me the time for that. And um, as I said, probably at the beginning, uh, there is a website that you can go to to find out more about what Tom is up to. I do know he's got some dates coming up this autumn, 2023. But this has been the C86 Show. I'm David East, so if you want to contact me, you can. On Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.